Welcome to episode 538 with my guest, certified sex therapist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all this shit rattling around in our heads. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist, and uh, it's not a doctor's office. It's uh, it's more like a farmer's market. <laughs> Jesus, I keep trying to mix this this thing up to keep my interest in uh, in the disclaimer at the top of the show. Uh, if you guys have not considered becoming a financial donor uh, or a subscriber uh, to this podcast, subscribing obviously doesn't cost, cost you anything, um, consider doing it. Um, it really, really, really helps. And uh, I would appreciate it very much. Uh, you can financially donate one of two ways, either a one-time donation through PayPal or a monthly contribution through Patreon. And I am revamping the Patreon levels and rewards. It's uh, I've neglected it for a while. And uh, unsurprisingly, Patreon donations are down. And I mean, you throw in the pandemic too. Uh, I'm going to blame it on that. Um, so yeah, if you would consider doing that, you can you can donate for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, let's get to a survey. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by No Really I'm Fine, and they write, "I love going through the drive-through car wash. There's something so calming and peaceful to me about the ritual of it." The way the rubber floofy things spin around to scrub all around your windows. The water cascading down around with the weird colored soap that looks like a rainbow sherbet. And when you have to drive out slowly to get the air to dry your car off. All of this knowing at the end you have a clean sparkly car. At least on the outside. I love that one. I so relate to that feeling it's i love anything that feels like you're returning to the womb where there's no response when you're going through a drive-through car wash you you know that for 45 seconds you don't have to do anything it's it's like a nap crammed into 45 seconds thank you for that one this is from the ask paul anything survey and ellen de hemorrhoids I think I remember some of the art, some of the portraits of you hanging in uh, Versailles, in the bathroom, of course, of Versailles. But you, you were an incredible leader in uh, 18th century France. Helen de Hemorrhoids. I love it. She asks, how do you feel about listeners feeling some level of attachment to you? I listen to your voice weekly and I feel like you're accepting, human, open, loving, caring, predictable, and stable presence for an hour or two a week for years of my life is enough to naturally feel some level of care or attachment towards you. Don't worry, I'm not asking to call you dad yet. Just curious how it must feel to have minions around the world you have never met who care for you or the version of you we know dearly. Thank you for that. That uh, that, that really um, that really touched me. Um, and yes, I do get emails from people that say they feel like they know me and they thank me for the podcast and what I usually uh, say 
and it's the truth is it 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 feels like a two-way street because I'm really open about the struggles that I have on the podcast. I've I've shared many many of them. And I get feedback from you guys through emails or um you know maybe I'll have a guest on who's who's a listener and um they'll express something that helps me feel seen and heard and connected cuz you know let's Let's not forget, even though I'm the host of this show, I'm a fucking nut job and um, insecure and I want to feel seen and validated and know that I'm not alone. So I hope that answers your, your question. And occasionally I will get somebody who I have to set boundaries with, you know, like maybe they email me and they want me to call them to kind of be their, their therapist. And I say, you know, I, I, I can't do that. Um, I, I really recommend that you go see uh, somebody or open up to a to a close friend because my uh, my battery I have to I have to keep aware of my internal battery and if I tried to be everything to everybody and felt like it was up to me to keep everybody emotionally uh, on track I would I would not still be doing this podcast I would uh, I would have stopped because it would be too much. And speaking of therapy, one of our sponsors for today, as always, is BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Love doing it from the comfort of my home. Uh, I could do it on my porch if I wanted. Maybe I could do it on my front porch and invite all the neighbors into my complicated issues. (laughs) Hey, Bill, come over here. I'm talking about mom. Uh, if you've never tried online uh, therapy, check it out. I, th- I think it is uh, something definitely worth investigating. So go to the uh, website, betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include this slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then uh, just fill out a questionnaire. And if they feel they have a counselor who's a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if that's your thing. You need to be over 18. And if you're under 18, uh, they'll direct you to teencounseling.com and get the ball rolling on that one. All right. Uh, This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. And Sarah asks, is it ever a good idea to remain friends with an ex? What a great question. And my answer would be, it depends. Because there's a huge gamut of variables in a relationship with an ex you know are there kids involved was the relationship toxic or abusive uh are boundaries being respected um what is your intent in maintaining a relationship with an ex is it so that you don't feel alone or is it that you generally care about them and you are genuinely interested in in how they're doing so i i think asking all of those questions um would be something that would help help you make that decision and ask yourself, am I doing this out of guilt? You know, is my battery being drained by this? Or am I possibly draining their battery? Or or am I doing it because I'm in a relationship now and uh you know, I'm nervous about it or I'm afraid of intimacy and uh you know, I'm doing it because uh I 
I don't want to give all of my emotional intimacy to one person because I'm afraid of being suffocated. You know, those are all all questions that, that you can ask yourself. Uh, I have a friendly relationship with my ex. We don't talk that often. Mostly, you know, we'll every month or so we'll text each other a cute picture of our, our dogs or say, you know, how you doing during the pandemic thing. But it's... Uh, it's not a relationship that I would uh, describe as intimate, uh, but we do care for each other. And uh, so it's, it's, there are clear boundaries. And after we got divorced, I had kept, and I moved out, I kept my, a lot of my stuff in the garage, her garage. And I delayed getting all of it out of there and, and was not being honest with myself, uh, because the and my therapist helped helped point this out to me um, that I was avoiding feeling the pain of the breakup, the finality of it, by leaving some of my stuff in the garage, and I did feel sadness and pain when I did finally move that stuff. And I, uh, my therapist suggested that we have a period of time where we didn't have any contact with each other, so we could delineate what was the marriage and what is a post-marriage um, friendship. And I feel like I navigated that uh, clearly. And I, I, yeah, I feel good about it. It feels clean and uh, clean and clear. So I hope that answers your question, Sarah. And then this is a happy moment filled out by Louisa and she writes today my sister asked me on short notice if I wanted to join her for a walk the pandemic has been taking a toll on my mental health leading to me self-isolating and losing myself in my depression and anxiety so my first instinct was to say no but then I kicked my own butt and forced myself to say yes because the sun was shining and the birds were chirping and I knew that sitting at home by myself would not make things any better so we met up and walked for a while and engaged in small talk, which was nice. Then my sister started sharing about her experiences with her new therapists, her anxiety about her first visit to a psychiatrist, and how she felt her issues weren't legitimate enough. I could relate to her on so many levels and told her how I'd felt the same way when I first started seeing a psychiatrist. Suddenly, I felt really safe with her, and I ended up opening up myself telling her how low I've been feeling, and even that earlier this week my psychiatrist had suggested that I consider another stay in a mental hospital for my post-traumatic stress and eating disorder. I hadn't told anyone else yet because, frankly, I'm terrified at the prospect. My sister was really understanding and encouraged me to get help. She even thanked me for trusting her and told me I could always call and talk to her if I felt lonely or upset. My sister and I have had really rough times, and my struggles with mental health have led to a lot of resentment and conflict between the two of us in the past. Us walking together today in the beautiful spring sun, both of us feeling safe enough to share about our worries, was such a beautiful and profound experience. It's amazing that earlier today, the thought of suicide kept popping up in my head, and now, only a couple of hours later... I've achieved more intimacy and trust with my sister than we've ever had. I'm really glad I'm still here. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? 
There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) (laughs) I am here with uh, Dr. Nazanin Mowali. You're a certified sex therapist. Uh, What is the differentiation between that and a regular therapist in terms of schooling and expertise, etc.? Well, great question. So in graduate programs in psychology, most people, they don't get that much training in uh, human sexuality. I remember when I finished my graduate school, I, I got my master's and then PhD. I had total of one class in human sexuality, wow. <laughs> which was only on my undergrad, actually. Uh, I, I went to UCSD and they were teaching uh, human sexuality to undergrad psychology students. And that was it. That is baffling seeing how for most people who have sex issues, it goes so deep and it's so tied to trauma usually. Mm -hmm. I mean, am I off the mark there? Absolutely, you're right. And I think we you learn a lot about one's mental well-being, uh, their overall health by talking to them about their sexuality. So I think when it's not addressed, it's a really missed opportunity. There, there's a lot of um, division in the the community, the mental health community, about whether or not sex addiction is an actual addiction, like alcoholism or heroin addiction. Uh, Talk about that, if you would. Well, I I was sharing with you before we started recording that I actually started my journey of becoming a sexual health expert from starting to learn about sexual addiction, because that was something, something that was showing up in my office, and I was curious about it. And I got some training in it, and I, I believe... Back then, with the information I had, I was able to help lots of people. But then slowly, I learned that there are there is a spectrum of sexual challenges. And yes, sexual compulsivity could be part of it. But I felt that in order to help people to get to the good place with their sexuality and quote unquote healthy, it would be important to um, help them to navigate their sexual well-being. But you're right, there's a huge divide because within the sex therapy community, many practitioners believe that uh, sex addiction is a stigmatized way of looking at one's sexuality. They think that in some conservative communities, uh, this diagnosis has been used to weaponize sex because whenever there's a value discrepancy, people at times uh, label it as sex addiction. Uh, But we know that one's sexuality is very diverse. Uh, But I think what's important is what is helpful for people. Right. If sex addiction label is serving them, it helps them to go through that uh, treatment. That's a good option. If not, 
there is another approach through the sex therapy that they call it out of treatment of out of control sexual behavior, which is a slightly different approach, but it's it's a different way of looking at this uh, challenge. And what would the difference in that that viewpoint be? Well. Uh, when we're thinking about out-of-control sexual behavior, uh, the person who uh, kind of decide whether it is problematic or not, uh, it's it's a client. Kind of thinking about if it subjectively feels out of control or not, and uh, it's it's more involved when it comes to assessment. We're thinking about is it the culture that impacts you to feel this way? Is it your partner that blames you for watching too much porn? We're looking at lots of different things. With sex addiction model, there's different criteria. Like uh, some of the criterias are, uh, have you been uh, kind of your your uh, sexual behavior? Has it, they have been getting in the way of your doing your work, uh, social interactions? Do you need more and more stimulation in order to experience the uh, sexual arousal and uh, sexual excitement that uh, that you used to get, whether you're putting yourself in risky situations? So there are different criterias. And in that uh, modality, they compare it to uh, gambling addiction. They compare it to drug addiction. And the treatment is more structured in a way that you're committing to a period of uh, abstinence and there are some steps that you need to take to make sure that you're addressing that issue. Uh, the period of abstinence, what, what is the, the purpose of that? It's temporary, correct? Yes. Yes. Is, is that to, um, feel the, the feelings that have been buried since childhood or adolescence? Well, I think it, it's actually a very good part of that treatment because it gives people opportunity to pause and see what's happening. Because as you mentioned, sometimes we are leaning, leaning into these behaviors because there are underlying issues. Perhaps there could be OCD, perhaps could be depression, anxiety, trauma. And then when we're pausing, as you mentioned, we can see what's underneath. And also we'll, we're kind of learn to cultivate a, a coping uh, strategies that will help us to interrupt the behaviors. It helps us to do a, a kind of repair with our partner, with the community. So that can be very beneficial. Uh, have you come across, well, let's talk about pornography. It's a, again, a divisive uh, subject. Some people believe that, that, you know, all pornography is bad. It exploits the people uh, in, involved in it. Other people are like, hey, if, if, you know, nobody's getting hurt. People are doing of their, of their own free will. Uh, it's not illegal. You know, back the fuck off. Let somebody have their their fun. And then there is the continuum of how much time people spend looking at it, how they feel uh, about it. Um, you know, how they feel about themselves. What. What's your view on uh, pornography? Well, um, it can be a useful tool for some people, for for them to explore their sexual fantasies, things that they perhaps want to learn more about. But it's purely entertainment. It's, it's important to keep that in mind. But if you find yourself that you are using it as an escape, 
that you are watching porn in order to uh, distract your mind as a way to dissociate, then then we're entering an area that could be possibly problematic because you're not addressing the underlying issue. Perhaps I have clients that they feel anxious and in order to address that intense anxiety, they watch porn and they masturbate or watch it for hours and hours and impact their quality of sleep they're getting. Uh, and also there's an element of feel like they don't feel good about themselves afterwards. They feel shame, they feel uh, frustration and confusion. So that that can be a problematic use of porn. How about somebody who is looking at porn? It's not interfering with their their work or their relationships, but they don't feel good about themselves. What what do you do with somebody like that? Well, I think it's important to know what is the story behind it. Why am I not feeling good about this? Is this a type of the porn that I'm watching? Am I not feeling comfortable with kind of like my values of this? Is there people that I feel like it's not consensual? Whether it's a minor involved, could be a number of different things. I think it would be curious, it's important to be curious about the reasoning behind it. And perhaps I, I encourage people at times to lean into using their fantasies. I don't think masturbation is wrong. I don't think there is any negative uh, connotation kind of like related to masturbation. There is no uh, physiological issue around that. But sometimes when we're using our fantasies, uh, we don't necessarily get into that cycle of uh, dissociation. Uh, so I think if that's where people find themselves struggling, that I'm watching porn and this is I don't like the content or I'm uh, overusing it, I encourage them as a first step to switch it to using their own fantasies. Uh, in other words, not looking at at porn. Right. Uh, talk some some more about that. What that looks like, maybe uh, an anonymous example of a client you've had or an amalgamation of clients that you've had? Well, I think uh, it's like I can talk about different different approaches with different people. Right. Um, so I had couples for perhaps that like I can talk about that they came into my office coming from a very conservative uh, religious background. Uh, and the male partner was watching porn and the female partner was really obsessed about it. And I see this dynamic a lot that upset about it. That's saying that I don't like that he's watching um, at another woman. I don't, I don't think this is ethical porn. So what we talked about him making a commitment to not watch those specific porns. But I think with uh, masturbation, that was something that he, had, he used to do for years and years. So he agreed to use his own fantasies, kind of talking, like thinking about what what is my erotic blueprint? We explore that what, what turns him on and then using his own imagination as a way that he could uh, explore his sexuality and connect with his eroticism. And I think one... Uh, one did, he, did he bring uh, his partner into those thoughts or... Did he keep them to himself? Uh, well, what, what, what I do is with people is we're talking about it and the separate session to see is mm -hmm. what is the content of it. For him specifically, what was turning him on was more mainstream. So it wouldn't be harmful to share it with the partner. So uh, we talked about it in the session and at the, toward the end of our treatment, they were incorporating part of it in their sexual play. That could be one option as well. Uh, so it's, it's pretty much uh, depends on what kind of a porn, what kind of a relationship that people are having. Uh, but I think 
one other thing that can happen with porn is that uh, people find themselves that watching the porns, like, you know, but some website that it just switches from one to another content and they find them themselves watching things. That's not necessarily what they're drawn to, but it's kind of recommended by the algorithm. And that doesn't make them feel good because some of these free content, they're just things that doesn't even ethically feels right to them. So I think it's important to be mindful of what are you watching? Where are you watching it? And what can you, if you're not feeling good about it, kind of like exploring what aspects of it uh, is not serving you. What are some types of pornography that have been problematic for clients? Well, it it I think it depends. I've seen all sorts of uh, kind of issues that people had with pornography. Uh, one thing that I've seen that people starting with watching regular, uh, quote unquote, regular porn from free websites, and then uh, as they went through this, they found that watching porn is no longer that that kind of like movie set is no longer satisfying to them, and then they changed to webcams, they changed to uh, picking people up, and that became problematic for them. Uh, but it, to me, it's based on my experience as a clinician. It's less about the content, and it's more about what's what are you experiencing internally. It's about your self-regulation and uh, vulnerabilities that you have to sorts of different uh, psychological challenges. And so, as a clinician, are you do you try to approach it judgment free uh, as as far as the the type of pornography they're looking at, and is there anywhere where you draw the line? Well, definitely as someone that specializes in uh, human sexuality, I try to be uh, non-judgmental. People, it's just such a vulnerable thing for people to come into a therapist, psychologist's office saying that this is what I'm struggling. Um, so I, I've seen all sorts of uh, porn consumptions that people had, all sorts of uh, diverse sexual behaviors they they gravitated toward. Uh, so I think that's that's something that I I was fortunate enough that I was able to cultivate this open mindedness toward this. I think ethically, what can get problematic and legally is when people are attracted to uh, sexual entertainment materials that presents minors. Uh, because as a clinician, then that's something that in California is reportable. Uh, and I, again, as a sex therapist, I don't think whoever, everyone who watches uh, pornography that portrays minors are going to act on those. But then that that creates a challenge in the relationship, in the therapeutic relationship, uh, because I don't I want my clients to feel safe to open up to me. Uh, but if they share with me that they're that's what they're attracted to, then that's something I have to report. So that's why when I work with people, I make it very clear that that's that's the line. Uh, before they open up so they are are aware because you know i've read surveys uh from people where they'll they just mention that it's a part of their fantasy and some misguided therapist would report them mm -hmm. and that to me is like so fucked up mm -hmm. right right and it's just so hard for people to come to therapists and open up to them. So that's why I think it's important for uh, all clinicians, our pe uh, all the people who are doing reporting to be very 
honest and open about these things that this is this is where I have to make the reports and so people know what to share but you're right that people already feeling uncomfortable about these things and reporting it can make the kind of create this huge rupture in the relationship uh, have you ever read the book uh, The Erotic Mind by Jack Moran yeah I love that book it, it's such a such an amazing book um talk about his insights uh, in in that book and what you have have kind of taken in and and agree with. Well, one of the concepts that resonated with me a lot from that book was this concept of erotic uh, br- blueprint. It tells uh, emotions, thought, things that makes us feel excited and feel sexual desire, and it's almost like a, a fingerprint in a way that it's very unique to each person. And I think it's important to uh, kind of see what what's in what's part of your erotic blueprint. What are some of the emotions that you would need? What are some of the uh, kind of uh, elements and context that you need to have to be in a good place when it comes to their sexuality? And I think part of it, it's important to kind of reflect on your earlier life experiences, kind of thinking about what was some of the things that was turning you on and kind of having this judgment uh, kind of free approach toward that everyone's sexuality is different there is not necessarily wrong with one brand of sexuality but i think it's important to know yourself and explore various ways to uh, experience and kind of uh, lean into your sexuality that's congruent with who you are so values uh personal values are something that should definitely be on your radar when you uh look at your fantasies et, et, et cetera. Absolutely. And I think it's important to kind of be very clear about your values. So kind of thinking about if this this what I'm watching is congruent with that or not. Uh and is does that apply as well to the things uh, let's say you're not watching pornography but you're fantasizing about something is that a different set of um, issues than, than stuff you're looking at. Well, what I invite your listeners to do that I, I talk to my clients about is kind of like kind of identifying your main values that like the, the life that you want to live and what, what do you want your legacy to be? Kind of those are the core values. And then think about these emotions and thoughts that comes up around watching porn, around sex, and kind of examining that. Is that, are you struggling because there is this uh, misalignment with your values or it's byproduct of growing up in a sex negative culture? Because we all are bombarded with uh, negative messaging around sex and desire and especially women and many men. So that can impact this kind of feeling of shame and guilt that I, I hear from even younger clients of mine are talking about how much shame they're experiencing when they masturbate. Uh, and kind of like what are some of the what are some of the kind of even physiological uh, kind of experiences they have because of that shame. Uh, talk about the correlation between shame and, and sexual excitement. Well, they're incongruent, right? So when we're unless that there are particular subtypes of people 
that they love experiencing shame as part of the erotic blueprint. Those are not the people we're talking about. But many, many of my clients, they grew up with uh, kind of this message of negative messaging around sex and sexuality and what does it mean to be kind of valuing sex? What does it mean to be with a partner? Many people from conservative communities, they, they learn this negative messaging around uh, sex outside the marriage. All of those things, uh, those messages are now is internalized and part of who they are and remains at times in their bodies. Uh, so when they want to have even consensual experiences with other adults, these shame, uh, sh- these shameful experiences and emotions shows up in their body as form of sexual dysfunctions. With male, I have er- clients who are struggling with erectile dysfunction, women that they tell me like intercourse is very painful, number of different things, because it's their body talking to them and saying that, although in your mind you're saying sex is okay, but uh, in our bodies, we're, we're not able to uh, kind of let ourselves to lean into that pleasure. Uh, one of the things that uh, I recall from the book uh, Erotic Mind is he talked about us having moral hurdles uh, in our sexuality, things that, that are... Uh, fraught with complicated emotions for us. It may be against our moral code, uh, you know, something that we fantasize about. And I could be wrong, but I, I, I thought I remembered him saying that that can actually enhance the intensity of someone's sexual experience. Uh, talk about that. Well, what we know about when we're talking about fantasy, and I would, I would be curious to hear your thoughts about that, that about fantasies, uh, although some of our fantasies might not be uh, quote-unquote conventional, but the purpose of our sexual fantasy is to create safety. So because we feel shame, many people around sex, these fantasies are a way that our brain try to neutralize that situation. For example, I have lots of clients, female clients, that they have rape fantasies. And the reason that they have this rape fantasies is that because part of them early on uh, learned that sex is bad. And if they want sex, it's a bad thing. So their mind goes to the sexual fantasy. I've been raped. So uh, I was, I, I was not at control. So therefore it allows them to experience that pleasure. Um, so of course, none of these women, uh, women want to get kind of assaulted, anything like that, but that's how our brain works. So it's our, our brain gets to go into a time machine and choose this situation that's fraught with, uh, nervousness or anxiety or whatever the negative emotion may be. Absolutely. And use our fantasies as a way to neutralize that. And is that a healthy thing for somebody to, to do that? Yes, I think depending on, again, what kind of fantasies you're, you're uh, experiencing, for most people, it's very healthy. And I think it's important to uh, connect with our eroticism because that, that is a source of creativity. That's a source of life. Uh, so again, unless that you're fantasizing something that's legally creates an issue for you and then that, that might put you in a position that's, it's, will have major consequences. Um, other than that, all sexual fantasies are uh, quote-unquote normal and common and uh, it's okay to indulge in that i'm going to go to some questions that uh, people put out on social media uh does she think the abstinence 
uh, hyphen compelled clergy or anyone in similar circumstances are more likely to act out sexually due to institutionalized self-repression. So I guess they're asking, uh, is is somebody who grew up in a sex-repressed environment more likely to um, act out sexually, to, to have it become problematic uh, because it's so charged with uh, power. Uh, so we certainly all seen those examples. Right. And working with uh, people from conservative communities, I've certainly seen how, how challenging it is to repress our sexuality. Sex is a natural part of human experience, and we're repressing it. It, it will show up in different ways. It could be a form of aggression. It could be a form of depression. It could be a number of different ways. Uh, one thing that's important to keep in mind that sometimes some of these sub, uh, subpopulation, although they talk about sex being sinful in the relationship, the partner relationship, they let people to kind of indulge in their solo sex. So that could be one way. But yes, I, I've like in a, more broader way I've seen whenever we're trying to repress our sexuality, uh, it's, it, it could lead to number, it leads to number of different, uh, issues for people. Uh, talk about, uh, masturbation within a relationship. Um, what kind of issues come up? What's healthy? What's not healthy, et cetera. Well, Paula, that's one of the number one questions I get that uh, people are asking if it's, if there is something wrong with my, with me and my relationship with my partner masturbates. First of all, that's very, very common. Many happy people in their happy relationships, they masturbate. Uh, it could be a form of uh, release for people. It could be a way for them to do emotional regulation. And if it's not impacting the relationship in a way that like your partner doesn't want to have sex with you, then uh, that's that's completely uh, could be normal. I think it's important to be honest with our partners because what I've seen that when, especially in heterosexual couples, that when one one of the partners, they kind of ask about like, oh, are you masturbating? The other partner says no. And that can lead to this kind of distrust when they realize that the partner is watching porn and they're masturbating. I think it's important to talk about your relationship agreement. What is, if you are in a monogamous relationship, what is a relationship agreement? What is constitute, uh, what's, uh, what's be, uh, kind of like definition of cheating? Is looking at someone else's cheating, watching porn is cheating, webcam is cheating. So it's important to talk about it because oftentimes people entering this monogamous relationship thinking they know what they partner consider cheating. So I think that's, that's important to talk about. If you notice that your partner is, uh, masturbating a lot, they're not interested in having sex, um, I think there is perhaps whether, uh, kind of challenges within your partner or in the relationship. That's an issue. I don't think in those cases, porn is an issue. The same way if your partner was going to golf every Saturday, Sunday, not wanting to be home. So golf is not an issue. The issue is what's happening in the relationship. It's the same with, uh, porn use and masturbation as well. And I think it's the, the other point that's very important is to be honest with our partners, uh, not make promises that we will not be able to fulfill because I've seen that as well that the partner get caught watching porn they're saying that I'm not gonna do it ever again and of course that if they masturbated to porn for decades and decades it it's it will not be possible for them to just change it that quickly 
have you come across instances where the there's one partner who's masturbating and the other partner um is is bringing opinions about it that are uh problematic uh and unfair to the to the other partner um where you feel like well this this person that's masturbating they're they're you know it it doesn't seem to be problematic. It, this other person just doesn't like the idea of it. And what do you, as a clinician, what do you do in that situation? Do you try to bring the, the partner who's resistant uh, around to a, a point of view that's more accepting of their partner? Or do you say their chemistry is their chemistry? Uh, I just want to help them. Uh, I just want to foster a conversation so they can decide if they want to stay together or whatever. Well, it's one of those calls that I would say I get every couple months that the couple coming in, uh, they say like one of the partner having a, a sex addiction. And then when they are in the office, I'm doing assessment. Uh, it's not a sex addiction. It's a value discrepancy. One partner doesn't like the other partner masturbating. It's not, doesn't get in the way of the relationship in a way that like sexual kind of interactions doesn't cause any kind of issues with work, social relations for the other partner. So when I do this assessment, I, I share my objective experience that this is what I'm seeing here. But I think, of course, it's important to uh, kind of be curious to see what is it about your partner's watching porn that bothers you. At times I hear from my clients that they get scared to think about perhaps my partner is attracted to someone like that. And I look very different. Or if they're watching certain kind of fantasies, they want me to indulge in that fantasies uh, and that fantasy. And uh, I'm not willing or not capable. So I think it's important to explore that and having open conversation about it in a couples therapy session or at home, thinking about, okay, what are some of the questions you have about that? And what are some of the uh, truth regarding to that. And uh, many times, many of my clients, they, they don't have any interest on reenactment of those fantasies. It's just a way for them to uh, watch uh, watch something that's different than their sexual experiences. And it doesn't say anything about their relationship. So I think it's important to see uh, what are what gets in the way in the relationship when it comes to your partner watching porn. And if there, re- there is isn't relational issues, I have clients that they lean in more to solo play or masturbation uh, because they, they it's hard for them to have partner sex. Sometimes they have attachment issues. Sometimes they have performance issues with the partner. Uh, so that's important to also explore. Let's say you have a client who has shared their fantasy with a, a partner and the, the partner uh, has a judgment about that. And so the, they don't want to be open about that with their partner anymore. Um, is it is it healthy for that partner to imagine that fantasy while they're having sex with their partner, or is that a form of uh, taking energy away from the relationship? One of the things I see in the surveys over and over again is a lot of people need to imagine a certain situation to orgasm. They can't get there without it. Uh, 
And so they're kind of caught in a difficult place where they want to be able to, to orgasm, but they also want to be present with their partner. What, what do you recommend? How do you navigate that with clients? Well, I think it's important again to have a conversation with our partner that, uh, that's if, if you're willing to, to talk about this is what I need to, uh, enable to get in, in the bright mindset. Uh, for many of my clients, it's when they are thinking about those fantasies and, uh, during sex, it helps them to, uh, get distracted in a way. So the performance anxiety is not showing up. So it's more about the context versus thinking about, uh, the neighbor. Something like that. So it's not necessarily about the particular person, more about the con- the right context. If that's something that's problematic for your partner and you, you're not comfortable with that, you're trying to explore different way of connecting with your partner. I think there are tons of good mindfulness exercises that will help you to anchor yourself in the moment. Uh, again, thinking about your sexual fantasies, indulging in them during sex is not necessarily a quote unquote bad thing, but uh, what we've seen in research that when we're really paying attention to sensations in our body and really showing up for that moment, that's when the magic happens. And that can happen with uh, practicing number of different mindful, uh, mindful touches, number of different embodiment exercises that you can do to train yourself to get back into your body. Uh, is there any literature to, if, if somebody's listening right now and they're like, that's exactly what I need, are there any books or websites that uh, would help them uh, navigate that? Well, there, there is this book that's called Sensate Focus Touches. I think that's, that's the name that, uh, one, uh, one psychologist, sex therapist who was, uh, uh, someone that was trained by, uh, uh, Masters and Johnsons wrote this and it has beautiful illustration. It's, it has like very inclusive book that talks about how you can incorporate these kind of touches with your partner so you can train yourself and train your partner to pay attention to your body. So I think that could be a really good book if people are interested in. Let me go to another question from the from the internet. <laughs> um this person says, I claim, as do many behavioral health care professionals, that, quote, sex addiction is not a true diagnosis phenomenon. Uh, in order for there to be an addiction, the fact remains that tolerance and withdrawal are essential criteria of addiction, and neither has been convincingly demonstrated with respect to sexual behavior. I'm not sure I even understand that question. Do you? Well, I think it can talk about that, uh, that kind of like drift between sex therapy community and sex addiction community. And I, my invitation for especially for people who are struggling to kind of think about what resonates with them, because there are some uh, research studies in both sides of this argument. It's just a matter of reading on both of approaches and see what would be uh, more congruent with the approach that you want to pursue. Yeah, I guess I was confused because I'm wondering, is that person talking about a, a, a long-term withdrawal or a temporary withdrawal? You know, are they, are they talking about, uh, you know, abstinence? It doesn't sound like they are. I think they're just talking about going through a, a period of 
withdrawal? Is that is that what they're I asking? I think so. An addiction, the sex addiction model, they talk about withdrawal in the context of like, if you're not watching porn one night, then you will have irritation, mood challenges, all of those kind of similar symptoms that you would have if you, you were uh, someone who were dependent on alcohol and you're not having a drink one night. And do you find there to be a difference when uh, somebody is withdrawing from sex and memories and feelings are coming uh, up that they have compartmentalized or minimized for a long time um, versus somebody who's just uh, abstaining from alcohol and they're uncomfortable in their skin? Well, I think when we're thinking about sex and food, it's it's different because with alcohol, we can completely not drink for the rest of our lives and we'll be okay. But I think with sex and with food, that's something that's part of our daily lives. Maybe we can kind of practice abstinence for a little bit with sexuality, but that's, that is part of uh, our sexual and overall health. So I think that's, that's, that's the part that makes it more complicated. But I haven't seen necessarily when the underlying issues is addressed. That when during that period of abstinence, we're looking at is it depression, anxiety, OCD, all of those things. We're addressing the underlying issues. It's easier for people to tolerate that period of not engaging in sexual behaviors. Have you ever read the book uh, Silently Seduced? No. My, oh, it's so good. It's about covert incest. Uh, Kenneth Adams is the author, and he's the one that coined the term covert incest. And that is something that I experienced as a child from uh, my mother. And it took me decades to even uh, stop minimizing what happened to me. And when I stopped doing that and I started um, really giving weight to the feelings and the memories, uh, I experienced all the sadness and all the grief that I had pushed away as a child and had soothed myself with with sex instead of uh, avoiding uh it it was a big breakthrough in in me being able to self parent myself to experience self love to experience intimacy um to to feel comfortable being seen because i had i had taken on the shame of what had happened to me but it wasn't over you know my mom never grabbed my penis but there was sexualizing there were boundaries crossed you know one of the things that she did she took my temperature rectally until i was eight years old and i just always felt like you know there is something going on here that does not feel right and you know if that had been the only instance uh, i would have been able to say uh you know don't give too much too much weight to this. But when I finally looked at the pattern of her behavior and saw that I was an object to her, all just uh, the lava came out of sadness and grief and, and anger. And it allowed me to grow in the direction that I had wanted to grow, but could not grow. Do you come across people whose childhood uh, experiences were not dramatic, but it has affected them. You know, one of the reasons I, I ask is there, there's a, a question in the survey that we have, uh, have you ever experienced sexual abuse? And the answers could be yes, no, or some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And it is mind blowing the things that people list in some stuff 
happened, but I don't know if it counts. So I guess what I'm also asking for you to talk about is the minimizing of one's own experience with trauma and how do you navigate that? What are some some instances you've had with a client? Um, I, I, I guess my, this is the longest fucking question in the world, but I want people out there who have experienced something that isn't traumatic to be inspired to talk about it and, and to get help because it, it saved my life doing that. Just saying, what if I'm not a baby? What if I'm not exaggerating? And that can you talk about that? God, well, I'm so I'm so self conscious about how long that question was. Well, I think thank you for sharing your your experience and stories because I think the big uh, kind of movement of helping people to get out of that shame is sharing the stories. And I've heard so many similar stories uh, that from my clients that they talk about the exact same thing that things happen that I don't know if it was. Uh, it it was kind of sexual assault or it was kind of crossing the boundaries. Uh, just the other day, uh, one of my clients was telling me that the, her father used to uh, masturbate while she was in the, everyone was in the room in the hotel and everyone was sleeping. So she was saying that she wasn't, he wasn't doing anything to me, right. but he was masturbating while other kids were in the room. Right. I mean, that to me is so clearly a violation of, of other people's mm -hmm. spaces you know he could have gone into the bathroom right he chose not to so uh, i think clearly he was getting something out of that i mean what are what are your thoughts and how did this affect her Absolutely, because uh, as as you mentioned, he could have gone to the bathroom. Maybe if your child is one or two, that's a different story. But right. if you have someone that's eleven or twelve, that's definitely crossing the boundary. And my clients had so many experiences of his father showing kind of like crossing the boundaries in a subtle way, the way that he was kind of like touching uh, her mother in front of her. Things that were really problematic but it wasn't like he was touching her directly right and that impacted her in a way that she didn't want to have sex for the longest time she had low desire painful intercourse all sorts of things uh, because of her, that was the, her body responding that i don't want sex Right. I don't I, like early on and uh, that can be very confusing kind of like pre-puberty uh, feeling aroused because you're in a sexual context and trying to make sense of it so similar to what you said I've heard so many stories of people minimizing their experiences but it shows up for them in the bedroom and in the relationship. Um, even it could be non-sexual, like our attachment style plays a huge role in our relationship. I have clients that are telling me that they cannot be sexual with someone that they're in the relationship with. It's whether it's uh, love and partnership or it's sex. And these people at times, it comes from their childhood challenges and their avoidant attachments. It wasn't, it wasn't safe to be vulnerable with mm -hmm. a, a caretaker. Right. I'm, right. I'm going to be overwhelmed or betrayed mm -hmm. or, um, and does it usually go back to them not seeing, uh, feeling not seen, their boundaries not respected? It, is that usually what it goes back to? Right. It could be partly, could be that, could be partly, again, your, their mind trying to kind of make sense of 
uh, the situation, kind of eroticizing their challenge, kind of thinking about I'm going to, if someone is interested in me, I'm not sexually interested in them. Uh, therefore, I'll be uh, interested in someone that's kind of withdrawing. So it can, our brain can go to so many different places to navigate these childhood uh, complexities and uh, behaviors that was once uh, adaptive then it's no longer serving us. Because for a kid, in order to live in that family, she needs or he needs or they need to think about this is okay because they have no other option. But now that we're not in that context, uh, we have options. And I think it's important to uh, process that and question these experiences. Uh, One of the concepts that a therapist shared with me that really helped me to stop minimize what happened to me is she said your mother created a sexually charged environment and i think that's a, a concept that that can really help a lot of people because they may have a parent who you know oh boy your boobs are really getting big or the mother who who grabs her son's butt and tells him how attractive he is which is something that my mom used to do and i used to just let her because i thought it makes her happy you know whenever i would try to set a boundary she would act like i was the one that had the the problem and so I would just avoid it and a a couple of things to ask yourself if you're if you're listening is would this parent do this in front of other people would they do be acting this way touching you this way saying these things if a group of their peers their co-workers were were in the room Um, ask yourself what is your body what did your body feel when you experience these things um if you spoke up for yourself how was that received uh because the another one of the revelations for me and i see this a lot is it's all if if there is a parent who's creating a sexually charged environment or crossing boundaries it's almost never a single instance it's usually a pattern and there's almost like a uh a grooming a gaslighting to get the child to think that they're the ones that are crazy. Absolutely. And I want to echo what you said about sexually charged environment. And I want to highlight that sometimes our bodies are responding certain ways, just purely physiological. And it doesn't mean that you were okay with it. You ask for it. I have clients that during female clients penetration, they, they experience lubrication. Some people experience orgasm, uh, as a minor, there is nothing that you're doing that you were asking for this situation. It was cure, uh, purely violation. And this was your body responding to the situation. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, I also, I had a, a guest uh, a while ago, Leah McCord was the, the guest. And I'm so glad that she she mentioned this. She had talked about um, having experienced incest, penetrative incest uh, by her father. And she was, I don't know, maybe 11, 12. And there were times when she, after this happening, she would initiate it. And she said, I just want anybody listening to know that that was still his fault because he was the one who had groomed her, who had sexualized her. She, her mind was not equipped to know that this was not right. And her, you know, very often, as you know, our bodies and our souls can experience two completely different things at the same time. 
Absolutely. You know, I got reminded of my early experiences working at group homes. I, right after I got my bachelor's degree, I was working at group homes with children that were sexually abused. And these were children like four to eight, very, very young, and they were getting removed from the homes. And they were reenacting those behaviors with other kids. They're initiating these things. And it's not like the kids were bad. Sometimes when our body gets experienced pleasure, we get exposed to information that's not age appropriate, that can be very confusing. And that's just the symptom of experiencing sexual uh, assault. So I think it's important to keep that in mind as well. How would you um, help those kids when you see experiences like that uh, and you you want to help the child because they're they're young, their 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 brains are are forming. Well, I think with. That kind of that was a little bit of a extreme cases or in those in those situations. I think it's important to teach kids about boundaries. First of all, like having this non-shaming experience when it comes like to the masturbating or enactment with other kids. That kind of thinking about that is not okay, and then talking about boundaries of like how how they can touch their bodies, how we're relating to other people's bodies, and all of those ongoing conversations that I encourage every parent to have from uh, from the time their kids are toddlers until the times that they're teenagers. So teaching about boundaries are very important in a non-shaming ways. And also helping kids to learn about their uh, sex and their bodies in an age-appropriate way giving them the right accurate information. When they're asking questions, give them the right answer so you can inform them and open up these dialogues. Of course, if there are uh, specific traumas that they experience, it's important to address them. With going to therapy, there are wonderful uh, therapeutic strategies that help children and adults to work through those difficult moments. One of the things I see in the surveys a lot is uh, incest between siblings. Um, the majority of the time, um, I'd say close to 100% of the time, the person who's filling this, this survey out, you know, maybe they initiated sexual contact with a younger sibling. Sometimes it's even an old, an older sibling, but they're, they're reenacting something that, that happened to them. They still have a relationship with that sibling, but it's not spoken about. And they wonder, do I bring this up and apologize or should I just let that you know, as they say, let that sleeping dog lie. What, what, what would you recommend? I suppose each case is probably different, but is, is there a benefit to bringing it up and airing it out with that person? I, I would recommend people to think about the, the reason why. They want to share that with the, with the, uh, sibling that they have. So sometimes that even the, like some, some of the siblings might not remember some of these, uh, kind of, uh, situations happens when the other sibling is very young. Uh, but I guess the first step would be kind of really talking about it in your own therapy about the experiences you had, the meaning of this, but it can be incredibly powerful if you share that in the right context with your uh, sister, brother, your siblings. Because I I had a client that shared all sorts of somatic experiences that wasn't making sense for her. That like why I, I have all of these GI issues, issues around sex and all sorts of things that was kind of this 
vague but acute uh, symptoms that she had. And then later on, she learned about the abuse that was done by her cousin. And they had this conversation about it. And that gave her so much clarity. So I think if it's done tactfully, that can be very powerful. And it can, it can be opening for repairing that relationship. What is the the difference between kids doing healthy exploring and something that crosses into trauma, abuse? Uh, I get that question a lot from, from people in the surveys, people holding on to guilt. Um, talk about that, if you would. Well... What I know as far as like developmental psychology, that if, if kids at every age, they're curious about sex. So many of your listeners, perhaps they play doctor. They, they are curious about their bodies. Some kids are masturbate from very young age. And those, all of those things are, uh, common. Uh, as one of the signs that shows that there is something going on that's not age appropriate is when the parents or someone comes in to uh, redirect the children. So when they're playing something that's inappropriate, when the parents uh, redirect them to kind of distract them doing something else, they will get back to the behavior. So they will not, you will repeatedly will see that. I think that's part of it. The other part is they're doing something that's not age appropriate. Like, uh, like one of my clients was sharing with me that her son was doing, uh, kind of, uh, kind of pretending, uh, he was doing oral sex. And this was a kid that was seven year old. So where, where did he learn about this? So I think when you see things that are not age appropriate, it's important to ask your child that where did you learn this? Uh, what do you think about this? So that also could be an opportunity for for, uh, for communication, because sometimes even your children can learn things uh, through uh, purely observation. Many, many times, uh, like when, when these cases happen, and we're talking about this, the parents will realize that maybe perhaps one of the parents was watching porn and they thought the kid was so young or they didn't recognize or they didn't know. So our kids can pick up things. So I think there's so many different ways that they can expose to uh, kind of developmentally inappropriate sexual information. So I think it's important to explore that. Uh, but my invitation for parents is to approach it in a non-shaming way when they're asking questions. What are some of the most common questions that you get from people that we haven't addressed yet? Well, I think many, many other questions come to my mind. I think when it comes to relationship, uh, people are like one of the common questions that they have is that uh, how, how often, uh, how frequent people are having sex. And I think that's one number one question. And I think it brings up another important point that it's, it doesn't matter what other people's experiences are. As long as you're having good enough sex with your partner or with yourself, that's all it matters. I think that's, that's one of the categories of questions. The other categories of questions is people are uh, questioning about, am I doing this right? Whether if it's like, am, am I experienced enough sexually? And again, it's just a matter of thinking about, uh, what, what works for you and your partner. And many times we can improve our sexual experiences with purely talking to our partner and exploring things together. Uh, everything always seems when it, when it comes to the topic of sex, you know, there's the, the saying, uh, uh, everything is about sex except sex. And it, it, I had never understood that in many ways 
sexual dysfunction is an intimate intimacy disorder that the the pimple on the surface might be the compulsive sexual behavior but the real issue underneath it is uh, a fear of letting people in or being seen or self-hatred um talk about the the ingredients for a healthy intimate relationship well, there are different components to it. First of all, I think the healthy relationship, the part of it is consent. That two partners are agreeing to do this. I think that's really important. The other piece is like we are uh, acting in a way that uh, kind of uh, requires both to be safe. I think safety is really important. Uh, whether you're choosing to uh, kind of like practice different kind of sexual uh, safety behaviors. So I think safe sex is very important. But I think beyond that, I think there is a big part of it is to be able to uh, own what you like and share that with your partner. And knowing that if you're sharing this with your partner and they're not into this behavior, it's, it's, you're not wrong. You're not defective. It's the same that if you, if you like certain kind of food and your partner is not into it, they're just not into it. And then you can explore different ways that you can incorporate that in your sexual experiences, whether it's, uh, kind of indulging in it in your sexual fantasies or if you're in an open relationship with other partners. So I think knowing yourself and, um, and communicating your desires are important and also being able to show up for your partner in the bedroom, whether it's a casual, uh, casual relationship you're having or it's a long-term relationship that you're having that you are, uh, kind of like attuned to people's need and you're willing to be giving enough, not in the expense of you feeling bad about yourself, because I've certainly seen that, but kind of being open to doing things that's maybe it's not 10 out of 10 in your list, but maybe it's a five, mm -hmm. but you're doing it to make your partner experience pleasure as well. Love it. Love it. Uh, anything else you'd like to share before we uh, wrap up? I, I guess the last thing I wanted to emphasize that for people to know that if you're struggling sexually, it's something that's completely most of the time is fixable. You're not defective. You're not broken. This is another issue. It just requires problem solving. So I, I don't want people to feel that they're not able to have satisfying sexual experiences if in this chapter of life they're struggling. And how many times do you see that the answer is just acceptance right. of, of who they are? Is that pretty common? That, that that's the missing piece of the puzzle <laughs> is to stop judging oneself. Acceptance, but not resignation, right? So yes. it's it's important to work on it if it's workable. But the other piece of it is if it's something that's uh, that's not, you cannot change, and acceptance can be a wonderful tool. If people want to get a hold of you, uh, how can they get a hold of you? Great. Thank you for that opportunity. They can check out my uh, practice website. It's called sexologypodcast.com. It has all of my information, and I would be happy to answer any questions they might have. And uh, obviously, the name of your podcast is Sexology. Yes. Uh, how long have you been running? Uh, not as long as your podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but I've been running it for four years on a weekly basis, and I talk about science of sex and pleasure. Awesome. And they can find you on social media at? Sexology Podcast. Sexology Podcast. Dr. Mawali, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to her, and we'll put the links to all that stuff uh, under the show notes for this episode. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Sugar Mongolia. 
Uh, he identifies as straight. He's 19, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, not sure if he's been physically or emotionally abused, darkest thoughts. Sometimes I wish somebody will start a fight with me so I can beat the crap out of them. Darkest secrets. I've tried to kill myself multiple times. Don't think I'm going to tell anyone this. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to tie girls up and force them to come over and over. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm sorry for cheating on you. Nobody deserves that. But you're still a bitch, so fuck you. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could travel back in time to when LSD was legal and follow the Grateful Dead. I love that you want it to be legal, that that you're concerned about the legality of your uh, time machine travels. Uh, <laughs> that made me chuckle. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to the episode with uh, my friend Charlie Springer, but he he did just that. He was in Haight-Ashbury uh, during the Summer of Love, and he and his friends decided to go follow the Grateful Dead and thought that they would pay for their their trip by bringing sheets of acid, which they smuggled onto the plane underneath their clothes, and it soaked into their skin. And he woke up a couple days later in another state. I don't know how he is functioning today after all of that shit going in his system. But anyway, I digress. Have you shared these things with others? I don't really feel comfortable sharing things with others. I've only ever told a therapist, but I don't talk to her anymore. How do you feel after writing these things down? Quite stupid. I need to go get stoned. Oh, buddy. It, um, I hate reading stuff when people are avoiding what's what's going on and there's self-hatred going on because a I relate um, you know I open up nowadays after a while after holding it in and obsessively playing video games or finding something to numb out but I, I used to live the way you lived uh, especially around your age and the problems and the feelings don't go away. They just get more complicated and more problematic. So I really encourage you to to open up to somebody, whether it's a support group or a trusted friend or a therapist, but sending you some love, man. This is also from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Teenage Wasteland. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I went to visit a former dorm mate in London, and he drugged me in his apartment, and I woke up naked. I don't know if anything happened, but I felt it was my fault for putting myself in that position. Never told anyone until my therapist 10 years later. I was also raped at a festival when I was too high to stop it. It wasn't violent, so I didn't really see it as rape until I talked to my therapist about it. Uh, she says that she's never been emotionally abused, but she has been uh, physically abused. Um, and also Czech been emotionally abused. So I guess one of those is in relationship to her parents and the other is in relationship to somebody else. 
When I was 17, I was more or less held hostage by my boyfriend. He wouldn't let me see my friends or family without him in case I would tell them. He frequently had bouts of rage where he would throw furniture at me or threaten to kill me or himself with a knife, and I often had to lock myself up in the guest room until he calmed down. Once, when he read my text messages and saw I had texted a friend, he waited outside the house for me and punched me in the throat. I received death threats for six months after we broke up, and my mother sent me abroad for a while until it blew over. Wow, that is intense. Wow. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, I think I have problems with getting too attached to people, and even if some of my relationships have been horrible, I always have a really hard time letting go and leaving because I try to see the best in people and hope they will change, and it feels, ironically, that I'm safe as long as I'm with someone. I really recommend you read the book Facing Love Addiction by by PM Melody. I don't I don't know if it will ring any bells for you, but I have the feeling that it that it might. Um and there's lots of support groups for people who are struggling to get out of toxic relationships. Um a lot of 12-step ones. If you go to the website in the rooms.com, you'll see a huge host of uh 12-step meetings on a variety of of issues darkest thoughts i frequently think about leaving my boyfriend and it feels like i'm living a lie when i tell him things are okay because i'm not strong enough to actually leave even if i'm aching inside and know we'll never be happy together darkest secrets i used to take a lot of drugs and ended up in a new age cult where i had a drug-induced psychosis It didn't help when I finally went to a doctor and developed PTSD. I couldn't work for years, and I didn't get a diagnosis, meds, or help until five years after. No one in my family knows. They think I was depressed and had some anxiety after, but they didn't try to help me with that either. I still can't tell my therapist exactly what I experienced during my psychosis because I've sealed it inside for so long. I'm hopefully getting there, though. I hope you are, too so important to let that stuff out. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to fuck a guy with a strap on. It feels less weird saying it because a lot of people probably have worse fantasies. I don't know why you think that would be a bad fantasy. Uh, You know, as long as as he's uh, consenting, you know, have at it. I say grab his hair. If you're in a retirement home, grab his wig. Yank that motherfucker. And if you are going to penetrate somebody, it's always really, really important right before you do it to ask them, who's the boss? And then once you start doing it, yell giddy up. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my parents they weren't good parents, despite telling us kids how lucky we've been all the time. Uh, Yeah, that's usually a red flag that your parents are narcissists when they tell you how lucky you are to have parents like them. You know, I mean, there's one, you know, it's one thing to make your children aware of financial privilege or privilege to you know, have white skin uh, in in our society. But 
having privilege in one area doesn't mean you're privileged in all areas of your life. I was very lonely and I was a very lonely and hurt child and I never got the help or support I needed. I want to tell my mom I know she favors my sister over me because she hasn't, quote, failed her yet, but I know she's suffering from her childhood too and I hope she doesn't fall into the same snake pit I did. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could have lived a happy life and I wasn't turning 30 next year. It feels like the past 15 years were just a wasted nightmare where everything could have gone differently, but instead just all went wrong. So many people relate to that feeling. And and I've got to say, I think that is one of the most prevalent thoughts that eat away at us is that we're doing life wrong. And I just want to say... Just consider that the universe knows what it's doing and you are on a path that, though it's going to be filled with hurdles and pain, you're going to build spiritual, emotional, and mental muscles and a sense of meaning and purpose in your life that will make your life richer, you know, almost like a forced gym membership for your soul. Just consider it. Have you shared these things with others? Some of it with my therapist, but I've only been seeing her for a few months and I have such a hard time actually sharing what I think and feel with someone, especially as I can barely set words to my feelings half the time. Boy, do I relate to that. And I think that's one of the first steps in helping to heal or develop healthy coping mechanisms is having to put our feelings into words because usually our thoughts and feelings pinball around so fast that we can't ever really pin them down and compare them to facts on the ground. I think that's also why cognitive behavioral therapy can be a good thing for, for people because it helps you compare. When you compare what the facts are on the ground to the fear bouncing around in your head, you know, trauma and abandonment have a way of distorting uh, reality and making us future trip or obsess about the past in a way that, that that is not kind to us and I believe negatively impacts our current relationships with people. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad and disappointed in myself. I'm such a happy and kind person on the outside, but I feel like an egotistical lie when I share how I really feel. So many people feel how you feel inside and you are a human being doing the best you can. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experience? Please fight to get help. It's been such a relief for me. Just a shame I got it way too late. You know, for those of us that are a generation older than you, it's it's almost comical to us to read about somebody in their 20s who feel feels like they've wasted their life. Um, and we're not making fun of you. We just look at it from a different perspective. Um, but I I get it, and I'm not I'm not minimizing your thoughts or, or your feelings. I know what you are thinking is, is feels very real to you and is real to you. Oh, you apologetic fucking people pleaser. 
Sometimes I make myself sick. Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by Mitchell and he writes, I love making my three-year-old nephew smile and laugh just from playing peekaboo or running past the front of him when he's in a swing coming towards me. <laughs> I love those. I, I, it's so corny, but I love the laughter of, of kids. The only thing that sucks about making kids laugh is they want you to do it a hundred times in a row. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Panic Queen. She is in her 20s, identifies as bisexual, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And then another instance where some stuff happened, but she doesn't know if it counts. Three and a half years ago, I went to a party with my best friend. We had met a few months prior and had become very close. We had nearly identical personalities and drug problems. We clicked. I was in an awful relationship, and he was a shoulder to cry on. We went to a party uh, at his place, hung out, drank, and flirted, maybe not so innocently. End of the night comes, and I stay over. He let me have his bed. He offered to sleep on the floor. I told him he could have the other half. We were fully clothed. I woke up to his hand down my pants and him grinding on me. I elbowed him in the temple, and I left shortly after. He apologized and has shown genuine guilt and tried to help me with it. He still does. We got together about six months after. He's not a bad person. He's very remorseful, and he wants me to get better. We've talked about it, and it's given me some closure, but I still feel so vulnerable from it, and I don't know where to go from here. I've been in therapy and couldn't approach it. I want to get over this, especially since it wasn't done maliciously. I just can't seem to get myself there. I'm really glad that you shared that because um, that is a really common, those are really common circumstances around people who experienced sexual violation. And it doesn't matter that he was, uh, that he is remorseful in terms of you healing yourself. It may help you heal, but somebody being remorseful about you know, traumatizing us, uh, in my opinion, is rarely going to be the sole thing that heals that. We need to process those, those feelings because they're heavy and they're intense and they're complicated, you know, and especially this one because he is remorseful. And I hope that he's working on himself as well because the fact that he did that um, shows that there he has emotional problems and boundary problems um, and, and maybe even more. So, um, yeah, keep, keep opening up in therapy. Uh, and a good way when you're having trouble opening up, finding the words to share something with somebody, start by saying, I'm having trouble putting this into words, what happened to me, how I feel about it. I don't want to misrepresent it. I think a lot of times that's the hurdle to opening up about something is we don't want to exaggerate it or minimize it. And we don't know. We're also afraid of how that person's going to react. Are they going to judge us? Are they going to minimize it? Are they going to say that we're being a baby? Are we going to make them upset? Uh, all of these things. So start out slowly, you know, start out where you're at. One of the things I learned doing stand-up comedy is when you're having a bad show, address the fact that you are having a bad show. You know, the elephant in the room is never a good thing, in my opinion.
And there's usually always a way to address it. I hope that uh, that helps. Any positive experiences with people who've abused you? I'm in love with my boyfriend, but it's just a weird situation. I often have difficulties having sex. That is not surprising. It is not surprising. Really common ripple from sexual violation. Darkest thoughts disappearing, just up and leaving, not telling anyone. I just want to leave everything sometimes. And again, that's a common response. Black and white thinking um, is a really common response, especially if there's addiction present or there's you know post-traumatic stress. Um, and in reality, what what we should try to do is to get rid of the problem rather than getting rid of our life. Um, but I, I understand that that feeling of just wanting to scrap it all and start someplace new, do something different. You know, I've I've often fantasized uh, about you know just getting a camper and getting out of Los Angeles and traveling. and And I'm gonna bet by the second week I would be like, "What the fuck have I done? I've left behind my support network." Um, you know, it would. Plus, my girlfriend's here, and I would not want to leave leave her. Um, darkest secrets she doesn't share. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I want to be abused. What if anything do you wish for? Peace of mind. Have you shared these things with others? I've tried, but I can't. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better relief. You can. You just did it. You just did it. And I and I think you can do it. I think you can open up to your therapist. And if your therapist doesn't feel safe, do you find another therapist? I feel like I'm giving too much advice in this episode. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Talia Rose. And she writes, um, I have treatment-resistant depression. That's what I have also. My question is, how do you pull through those hard days when you, quote, do everything right, but you still struggle to find the reason to keep fighting? I'm in therapy and on meds, but struggling. Well, first of all, I want to send you some love and say I'm sorry that you're struggling. My advice would be, be nice to yourself. Shaming yourself for feeling bad when you are battling clinical depression or trauma or any mental or emotional wound or struggle is just putting gasoline on the fire. One of the things I do is I reset my day by taking a nap. I almost always feel better when I wake up from a nap. Sometimes taking a shower helps. Uh, Sometimes doing a hobby that's playful like playing guitar or, or woodworking. Uh, one of my probably less than ideal ones is playing video games because then I can kind of numb out a little bit and that can become a little obsessive. Um, but if you don't have a problem with limiting uh, video game playing, that might be something to do or find a new hobby. But self-care and self-love, as corny and as difficult as that sounds, it really, it really does help. And one of the things I find when I play guitar is 
the, by the chords I choose, I find out how I'm really feeling. If all I'm playing are minor chords, I'm like, wow, there's something that I'm really sad about or I'm grieving something or I'm worried about something. You know, there are times I will sit down and I will play a chord progression that sounds like it should be played under a commercial about animal abuse. And my girlfriend sometimes will say, oh, you must be in a better mood because, you know, the songs that you're playing sound happier. So, my two cents. This is from the love survey filled out by Paul. Lately, you make my days so much better. Thank you. And they write, I love when I give my dog a piece of whatever I'm eating and they lock eyes with me the entire time that he's chewing it. (laughs) That is an awesome one. I don't think I've ever had a dog that, that locks eyes with me while they're chewing it. Uh, they usually look away. I don't know if they're ashamed, but I open that door with Gracie just with one thing that I eat with uh, smoked salmon. And now anytime she hears any package being opened in the kitchen, she comes running in and looks looks at me with those eyes. I don't know why I decided that that was going to be the one thing that I would share with her, but thank you for filling that out. I don't know if I read this survey previously on air, and I apologize if I do or if I did. Um, This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself OK, and he identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. He was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, ever been sexually abused? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. It's just a snapshot of a memory. I was in the hall of my childhood home, and my mother just walked out of the bathroom from taking a shower. She was wrapped in a towel, but I could still see the outline of her breasts, and it made me feel the same way I had felt when my neighbor showed me her dad's porn magazine. I asked my mom if I could kiss her breasts, and she let me. Yes, that is sexual abuse. It is up to the parent to draw the boundary. Um, He writes that he's never been physically abused, but he's been emotionally abused. One time my mom was mad at me about something and she took all my clothes and toys from my bedroom and threw them all out into the hallway and told me I was going to have to go live with my grandparents. One time she told me masturbating was bad and I lied and told her I didn't do it, which she knew was a lie, and that I thought it was gross and never wanted to do it all through embarrassed tears. I did manage to get my parents to rent me a video game after all that, though. Any positive experiences? My main abuser is so fucked in the head that it's hard for me to blame her, honestly. There were a lot of good times, and there continue to be, but things are definitely complicated. Darkest thoughts. I have a lot of incestuous fantasies. Not really with my actual family. I generally make up a narrative about how the people fucking and the porn I watch are related. I also watch a lot of interracial porn, especially black men with white women. I feel a lot of shame about that for some reason. Darkest secrets. I've said sexually inappropriate things to women I didn't know. I've made sexually explicit prank phone calls. I intentionally got caught masturbating by a friend's mother. I had a long struggle with being a thief. 
Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My biggest fantasies anymore all have to do with watching porn with people while I masturbate or watching someone else have sex in person while I masturbate. I've essentially taken myself out of the equation. What, if anything, would you like to say to somebody you haven't been able to? I'd like to ask my dad if he thinks about anything at all, ever. What, if anything, do you wish for that I could be satisfied have you shared these things with others, some of these things? How do you feel after writing these things down? No different. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Stay on track. Don't give yourself wiggle room because you will take advantage of it and you'll derail. Do the things you need, you know need to be done. Do the things that make you feel good about yourself, not the things that make you feel good for a minute. Thank you for sharing that. And as I read through this, I was like, fuck, I think I did read this survey already. But apologies to those of you that uh, that heard it already. But I want to thank you for, for filling that out. And um, it sounds like you're you're in a lot of pain. And there's there's a lot of shame and uh, a pretty pretty big wound or wounds from from childhood. And um, I'm sending you some love, man. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Go Fuck Yourself. Uh, and they write, Any chance we'll go back to the two-plus-hour episodes? I was excited this past Friday when I got the episode in my catcher, and it was way over two hours. As I mentioned earlier, first of all, thank you for your question. As I mentioned earlier uh, in the episode, I got to pay attention to my internal battery, and I found... I don't know, maybe a year or a couple of years ago that the long episodes were st starting to drain my battery. So I wouldn't say that uh, they're they're done forever, but um, I yeah, that's where I'm that's where I'm at with that because uh, sometimes it is it is um, hard to read all the darkness in the in the surveys. and um, it's weird because there's this, if you could put it on a graph, there's like this thing where the where the graph goes up and I feel better by reading them. But then after a certain number of them, if I read more than that, it, it would start to plummet. That's why my ha I take my hat off to therapists and social workers who are in the trenches every day, eight hours a day, just hearing people struggling and I know there's positive stuff in there and seeing people make progress and that's got to be really um, invigorating but um, yeah this is uh, from the shame and secret survey filled out by B and uh, she identifies as straight she's in her 30s was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment uh, ever been sexually abused some stuff happened but I don't know if it counts I have felt bullied into sex by my partners. Yeah, that is that is a form of, of sexual violation, you know. Um, somebody doesn't have to be pinned down for it to be a violation. Um, people can use emotions and manipulation and uh, lots of different things to, to get people to do what they don't want to do. And it's not about, uh, you know, is this person legally culpable for what they did? It's how did it make me feel? And that's the part that we need to get in touch with. 
she's also been physically and emotionally abused. My stepfather was physically abusive sometimes when I was little. I think my grandmother played a lot of emotional and mental games with me. It was confusing. Does she love me or is she trying to break me? Both. Boy, and does that encapsulate the complicated relationship with people who have a lot of darkness and some light in them. And and I would put my mom in that cat- category. You know, one of the things that she would do is she would kind of talk to me in an infantilizing way and she would take my face in her hands and she would kind of squeeze my cheeks and call me mom's cutest and say all these nice things and then she would finish it up with but you're rotten to the core and I would just feel myself shut down and I wouldn't really assign any kind of uh, anything to it Um, I would just kind of go well that's my mom never really stopped to think about how it made me feel Uh, I think on some level I believed her that I was a bad person and I think in a lot of ways that voice there's still parts of it in in my head. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, it's like you read my mind. Darkest thoughts. How pointless my life is. I'm just not good enough. It's not unique, but I don't know a reason to exist. Darkest secrets. I don't know if I love my husband of 15 years the way I should. I creep the internet looking up a boyfriend I had in high school. I dream about that man too. I don't know if I have... I am meant to change my life or if I am self-sabotaging. Boy, that is a really important one to to bring up. Being in a relationship where the intimacy isn't working is so complicated. Gracie, Gracie is so complicated and brings up so many other secondary emotions of guilt or loneliness, sadness, confusion, feeling cornered. It's terrible to be in a relationship where you feel cornered. And I think we should always consider all options, Um, you know, at least to, to think it through. You know, rather than saying, oh, I can't possibly, you know, hurt this person's feeling by getting out of a relationship. Yeah, that that is a way of hurting yourself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Other women being overpowered. I don't talk about my fantasies much, so sharing that, I feel vulnerable. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Mostly, I would like to disappear from this life and start somewhere else new. Well, you know what we say in my support group, every, everywhere you go... There you are, and you're going to have to deal with yourself and all your conflicted feelings and shame and negative self-beliefs wherever you go, whatever zip code you're in. So have you shared these things with others? Sometimes. I wanted to know I wasn't alone. I wanted to be understood. I want answers. Mostly I hear I need therapy. And I would say you deserve therapy. You deserve to be understood. You deserve to be known. You deserve to be validated and loved. You are lovable. As as new agey as that sound, it is the truth. And you are so, so not alone in what you are feeling and thinking. 
You know, how do you feel after writing these things down? I am afraid. We relate. We relate, you know. Whatever it is that's that's scaring us might be different than what you're feeling, but what matters is we're afraid. I'm going to venture a guess that 95% of the population is afraid of something. And their battle every day is to deal with that fear. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It's hard being a human, isn't it? It is. It sure fucking is. But one of the things I learned is we can use that struggle to connect to other people and bring meaning and purpose into our life. And the byproduct of that is not feeling alone and being able to help other people while they help us. And it's a beautiful fucking thing. And it's what rekindled my belief that there is a God or some benevolent force in the universe not sparing us pain or struggle or uh, things that make our soul want to shatter. But during those moments, it's there for comfort. And why is it that way? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that I can find comfort in the midst of chaos and pain. And some days that's the best that I can hope for. I don't think that was encouraging at all. (laughs) Right now, there's just the splish splash of people jumping off bridges with their air air buds in. Uh, This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Cindy, and she writes, Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Have you tried this for your depression? Yes, I have. I did the maximum number of visits at the maximum power the machine can legally be at, and it did not help me. But I have treatment-resistant depression, as I mentioned earlier, and my psychiatrist told me that it probably would not work. Uh, I had it done by a different psychiatrist, but I I thought at the very least I'll be able to talk about it on the show. I've also done ketamine therapy, which did not help, but it has helped other people. So there's that. And uh, this is an awful moment. This one is the definition of bittersweet, um, filled out by Hoosier Mama. <laughs> and she writes, Last summer, my middle child had decided it was time to stop cancer treatment. It wasn't helping anymore, and other options wouldn't help either. After several years of nearly always in the hospital, either getting treatment sick due to treatments or the cancer itself. He was just done. After a few weeks of stopping cancer, stopping treatment, the cancer went out of control and his pain meds were barely helping. When it was helping, he was completely knocked out. A friend who runs a dispensary in another state, in parentheses, it's not legal in our state, suggested trying marijuana. I finally gave in. I found someone local to get it from and they gave me a small glass pipe anything to help my kid, even if it's a long shot. So here I am in the bathroom with my teenager trying to explain how to use it. He couldn't figure it out and blew burning marijuana all over the bathroom. (laughs) I clean it up and decide I'm just going to shotgun him with it before he burns the bathroom down. For those of you that don't smoke weed, that's where you inhale 
the, the, the weed and then you blow it into the other person's mouth. Sometimes through like a paper towel tube or something else. And you can also kind of reverse blow it through a pipe or something that you're, that you're doing. There's lots of different ways to, to shotgun it, but, um, continuing. Uh, I'm trying not to inhale because we have family coming over to see him later. Well, it didn't work. I ended up just as stoned as him. After about 15 minutes of us giggling in the bathroom, I started to piggyback him back downstairs. At the exact moment we get to the stairs, uh, at the exact moment we get to the stairs, which meets our front door, my very old school conservative parents walk in. Here I am piggybacking my frail, dying teenage son with both of us reeking like weed. We were wildly laughing at this point because we just knew this would be the one time they decide to show up hours early. It did end up helping him be able to have a somewhat normal few last weeks. He spent the remainder of the days, uh, his body was able to, his, his body was able in the pool with his brother and sister, and they had cake for breakfast every day. But I'm sure my parents thought I had lost my damn mind. I'm not sure if this qualifies as awfulsome, but it sure was to us in that moment on the stairs. Not only is that an awfulsome moment, that is a Hall of Fame awfulsome moment. And wow, that is so fucking bittersweet. That That is just life crammed into 15 minutes. Thank you for sharing that. Wow, that one is going to stay with me for a while. And I don't mean that in the bad way. And then finally, this is from the love survey filled out by Small Feet. And they write, I love the lazy pace of a Sunday afternoon when the incessant weekday zooming and beeping on the busy street outside my apartment slows to an intermittent crawl of cars that don't seem in a huge rush to get anywhere. I love taking a walk through my apartment complex just as the sun is setting on another day. I love watching the warm glow of lamps being turned on through tilted shutters. I love the ordinary sounds and smells of daily life, the clanking of dinner plates as they are pulled from cupboards, the smell of downy dryer sheets wafting out of laundry vents, the sound of a sprinkler hose turning on. I love the routine of bedtime, brushing my teeth, washing my face, pulling on cozy pajamas, making sure alarms are set, and finally crawling into bed with that audible sigh of relief that another day is done. Those are awesome. Thank you for those. I'm so amazed that I, I've been reading the love survey now for, I don't know, a year maybe, and you guys are constantly coming up with ones that I'd never even thought of, but when I hear it, I'm like, yes, I love that one too. And they're so good for my soul. I get the feeling they're probably probably good for your soul similarly. But anyway, if you're out there and you're struggling, I hope this episode has reminded you that we're all struggling in some way or another. And and you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.